look, the only way to be effective in working for justice is through working intersectionally. Can we ever afford to let our strategies play into racist or colonial tropes for our own short-term game? The answer is absolutely not, because in the end, we'll all lose. Welcome to Radio Free Utopia. I'm your host, Ian Likas. Today on Radio Free Utopia, we're observing Human Rights Day, which celebrates the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 69 years ago on December 10, 1948. Although sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, and intersex characteristics aren't explicitly mentioned in the Universal Declaration, the human rights outlined in the Declaration are the underpinnings of today's international movement for LGBTI human rights. Here on Radio Freak Utopia, we're talking about the rights outlined in the Declaration all the time. Freedom of expression, freedom of association, the right to recognition before the law, freedom from cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, the right to seek asylum from, from persecution, the rights to health care, education, work, adequate housing, and full economic participation in society, and many more rights. So today, for Human Rights Day, we're talking with Jessica Stern, the Executive Director of Outright Action International. Founded in 1990 as the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Com Commission, IGLHERC, Outright is one of the oldest organizations in the world working for LGBTI human rights. Jessica, a fabulous advocate and leader in that campaign, is here to share her perspectives on where we are today, the progress we're making, often in places you might not expect, as well as the backlash. Before we jump in, a couple quick reminders. I'm delighted to announce that we're now on Spotify. Subscribe to Radio Free Utopia on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by all means, tell your friends about us. Okay, so here's my conversation with Jessica Stern. Welcome to Radio Freak Utopia. This is Ian Likas, and today I'm speaking with Jessica Stern uh, from Outright International, Outright Action International, excuse me. Uh, Jessica, could you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the executive director of Outright Action International, but for friends, you can just call us Outright. Right. How did you find your way to this kind of activist work? Mm. Oh, I'm so glad we're doing an eight-hour interview. This is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I mean, how do, how do any of us find our way into activism? Um, I think it, there were, you know, there were different things that motivated me. Um, growing up on Long Island, I lived in predominantly Christian communities, and I was this, like, weird atheist Jewish kid who was kind of bookish. And so I, I set about trying to understand, you know, an American Jewish identity, and it taught me about oppression and majority and minority communities. And, well, you know, the best laid plans come from learning about... Um, a Jewish political identity. And so before I knew it, that led me into doing um, economic justice and out of poverty work, which was really my first love. And I learned community organizing there, um, pr primarily through work with um, single mothers living in northern Philadelphia who were denied access to housing because the city's shelters were overflowing and there was no no political will to meet the need of, of poor families and, and specifically uh, poor women. 
And then along the way, as I was doing uh, community organizing, I, I kind of developed a sexuality and discovered I was queer. <laughs> and lots of good things came from that. Um, and so, you know, my, my kind of desire to live a whole life became a, you know, a real priority. And so I increasingly looked for spaces where I could, you know, live and work with a, an intersectional political lens where queerness would be a central piece about, you know, around what I was doing to make the world a better place. Um, and I would also be working in the context of international solidarity, because certainly if you've grown up working on injustice in the United States, you know that um, U.S. movements often have more questions than answers. Um, and we work in, you know, incredible isolation against a government that is strong and powerful and and often really kind of uh, blind to the needs of, of marginalized populations. And so it made sense to me from a very, like, very young age that if we were going to change our own well-being, that we had to take everything we could. And that meant solidarity with someone 10,000 miles away or 10 miles away. And, you know, that, that ultimately led me to the very fortunate position of, of coming to Outright. Fantastic, and sort of, you know, were there you know, particular moments that you know, you know, brought you specifically into the movement for global LGBTI rights? Hmm. Um, yeah, sure there there were some. Um, so when I was in my early twenties, I had the the great fortune of moving to New York City, and um, I became a part of a like a radical, collectively run women's bookstore. Women's bookstore was the kind of code we used then, but it really was like women's and queer and trans bookstore mm -hmm. called Blue Stockings. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I got a huge political education there. And um, so I spent a couple of years working as a temp in, in the corporate sector, working for like Christian radio stations and, you know, pr doing their copying and their, their trip receipts. And that's how I paid the bills to actually work on my first love because obviously the collectively run independent bookstore is not the most lucrative or sustainable industry in the world. Um, and then around the time when I think my, my powers was about to get shut off in my house, um, I said, you know, I think I need a job. <laughs> and um, I was incredibly fortunate. I um, happened to see a job at Amnesty International USA. Um, and it was really a changing point in my life. It was um, a position to become a, the Ralph Bunch Fellow, or one of three Ralph Bunch Fellows at the organization, which was actually a, a fellowship focused on racial justice. And I would be based in the newly launched LGBT program of AIUSA. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of learned from some of the best. Um, many of the people that I worked for then, whether it was Michael Heflin or Ariel Herrera on staff, or people like Susanna Freed and Cynthia Rothschild and Sean Gaylord who were, and Shantae Smalls who were on the advisory committee, you know, they were all part of that community. And I remember to this day that Michael Heflin said to me early in my internship, um, hey, there's going to be an event for this organization called Eagle Herc, mm. and they do full-time what outright, uh, what Amnesty does, you know, in our small department. And I was like, Eagle Hertz. I've never heard of this organization. What is this like an Autobahn society, you know, and, <laughs> and lo and behold, it was my first introduction to, 
the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, which of course today is known as Outright. And um, and I just I went to this event and I think Sunil Pant from Nepal was receiving an award and I just thought like yeah this all makes sense, you know it, it's an organization with a laser focus on LGBTI rights internationally and you know when you work for a mainstream organization like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch which I later worked for. Um, you have the respectability and credibility of this in incredible brand name. But at the same time, some of your work is inevitably internal. You're educating your colleagues and persuading them. I see you through Skype nodding along. You're persuading them that LGBTI rights are also human rights. Um, and, you know, I just, I just knew that one day I wanted to work so that I was based in an organization where our focus was really external and we could be very far-reaching, very ambitious in what we did and, you know, s save the fight for the true enemies, not for the, the colleagues in the office next door. Oh, that's a great, great phrase. I was working on a proposal this morning directly related to that. <laughs> so I, I hear you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and actually that makes me you know wonder about sort of how, you know, internally, externally, how has the movement for global LGBTI human rights changed over the time you've been involved? Enormously. I mean, I, I really can't, I sometimes can't believe how fast progress has happened. And then I realized, well, actually, we're talking about, you know, the safety and security of people's lives. So actually, every day when we don't have safety and security feels like an eternity. But, you know, the LGBTI movement around the world has progressed tremendously over the 20, yeah, 20 years I've been doing this work. Um, you know, when I started doing this work at Amnesty and then I went over to Human Rights Watch where I was the first LGBT rights researcher there, um, it was sort of cliche, but it was like, it was like in every country where there was an organized LGBT movement, I kind of knew who was doing it. And that's not to say that there weren't organizations at the grassroots level that, you know, escaped my attention, but like, the movement wasn't so big or so visible or so organized that you couldn't have a really strong network of those who were brave enough to stick their necks out. And that meant that there was incredible camaraderie, but also that progress came really slowly because there just weren't that many of us doing the work. Um, there was very little money to support our organizations. Very few of us were fortunate enough to have paid jobs doing this work. Um, and certainly legal and policy reform was often a, a distant dream, uh, not something you were going to put in your strategic plan for the next three to five years. Um, but, you know, over the past 20 years, I mean, we've seen LGBTI organizations proliferate in practically every country around the world. Many of them are legally registered. Um, many of them have funding. Many of them have staff. Um, and I always start with the question of like what the community's movement looks like rather than what the legal framework looks like, because the legal framework never changes if the movement doesn't insist. And so you can learn more, I believe, about the well-being of LGBTI people by looking at the state of LGBTI civil society than looking at the, the sodomy laws or the criminal code. Because we know that there are plenty of countries where the sodomy laws are still in place but they're not enforced. And there are plenty of countries where there are no sodomy laws or no so-called cross-dressing laws where the state doesn't need to find, need to have a, a specific law to justify 
arbitrary arrest of LGBTI people. So over the years, we've seen great progress, you know, everything from the fall of sodomy laws, the fall of cross-dressing laws, to gender identity recognition, equal marital rights, adoption laws, um, and it feels like the horizon just keeps getting brighter. I mean, it sort of ties in, I'm recording this a couple weeks in advance, but for Human Rights Day. Mm. And so getting a sense of, you know, what is the snapshot at this moment, you know, what is... What are the, what's the good news? What's the bad news? What's the surprising news? We've got some real challenges in this age of Trump, of Brexit, of Putin, of xenophobic movements all over the globe, as well as some of the tremendous progress you've already alluded to. I think, uh, you know, I, I've been talking a lot with colleagues and friends about the crackdowns we've seen over the past few months. I mean, there have been mass arrests everywhere from Indonesia to Tanzania to Egypt and beyond. Uh, you know, there's this registry people are watching in Azerbaijan. Obviously, Chechnya wasn't so long ago. And so one of the questions that I'm certainly asking myself is, you know, are we seeing an escalation of state attacks on primarily but not exclusively gay men in mass numbers? Like, is this, is this our new reality where because we have been audacious, organized, and visible, you know, there's kind of been like an awakening of the, the state-based opposition? And I don't have the answer yet. You know, I think it's a little too soon, but I know a lot of people feel afraid. Um, and I think our successes, which we, you and I were talking about a couple minutes ago, are directly correlated with the, you know, the mass arrests that we're seeing now. You know, LGBTI people have always been seen as threats, right? We're threats to the status quo. We're threats to gender conformity. We're threats to conservative definitions of the family. But now we're also threats to national politics because we're sophisticated and organized human rights movements. And so I've been thinking a lot about the backlash, and that's that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about around Human Rights Day. We have... Um, we have about, you know, 50 to 60 activists coming in from around the world, mostly from the global south, everywhere from uh, Kyrgyzstan to Egypt to Zimbabwe to talk about what they're seeing. And then we're also going to talk about some of the best practices because good things are happening as well. So, for instance, the, the government of Malta will be hosting a meeting for us talking about their intersex recognition framework. And that's a huge source of inspiration. We have around 10 activists working on intersex rights coming from countries around the world where, you know, there's still forced sterilizations done on intersex children. So um, I think you're going to hear it all on Human Rights Day, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we're going to focus on how to create a little more good. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, what, I mean, you just referred to Malta, you know, what, what might some of the other successes that people are not hearing about be, or the other promising mm. signs? Mm. Um, you know, I don't know if you've, uh, seen some of our work in the Philippines, but I always talk about it because it's actually such an interesting case study. So, you know, the world has been watching President Duterte, you know, who believes that, um, you can kill suspected drug users on site, that the rule of law doesn't pertain to some people, um, and generally has been a disaster for human rights and the rule of law for, for people in the Philippines. Um, 
But, you know, to paraphrase Michelle Obama in a really corny way, you know, when they go low, you go high. In this case, we say, you know, when the federal, uh, when the federal government is unified, you go low. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that paraphrase doesn't work so well. In my mind, it was really good. Um, <laughs> but what we've done in the Philippines is we focused on city-level change. Um, so when there are blockades at the federal level, you look for the next increment of government or the next ally that's going to have a big impact on a lot of people. And so Ging Cristobal, who leads Outright's program in the Philippines, um, has entered into an incredibly ambitious program in the largest city of the Philippines, Quezon City. Um, and in Quezon City, she has partnered with a really amazing organization called Engender Rights. And together, Engender Rights and Outright have trained upwards of a thousand police officers across the city on LGBTI sensitivity and police accountability. And the particular nature of the training actually focuses on domestic and family violence. And this to me is so important because if we actually want to change queer communities' relationships to the police, it partially requires asking more from the police, which means not just making them stop street-based harassment of transgender women in public spaces, but actually asking them to intervene in family and domestic violence, which is actually often the, the framing experience of queer oppression around the world, right? It, it's what our parents have done to us or our uncles or our siblings have done to us that makes it hard for us to live a free life. And so Quezon City has been amazing. And actually, not only have they trained all these police officers, they've changed the curriculum at the police academy. And they ended up putting rainbow stickers outside of every single police station that got a training, which just blows my mind. Oh, wow. oh that's great. Uh, you mentioned a couple minutes ago the, you know, what we may be seeing in terms of a state-sponsored your series of state-sponsored campaigns, especially targeting gay men, in some places trans women as well, um, this raises the question of sort of how often the debate on global LGBTI human rights overlooks or you know, relegates to the second fiddle um, lesbians, bi women, trans mm. men. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering you know, where you think we are at this point for uh, cis queer women and trans men? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, you know, our, our movement has serious issues with misogyny and patriarchy, right? I mean, movements for social justice should, of course, be better than the public at large, but, you know, our queer community is more racist, more Islamophobic, more patriarchal than it should be. And that impacts the allocation of resources and the priorities of our organizations. So, um, you know, I, I still see too little funding going into lesbian rights initiatives. I see too little lesbians having their own organizations. I mean, I could count on one hand the number of lesbian-specific organizations that I know, and they're almost all in Asia. Mm. Um, so whatever is happening in Asia, that's the best practice the rest of us should study. Mm. Um, We're in Asia? But it's, uh, well, I see it in... The Philippines, I see it in China, I see it in Sri Lanka, 
Um, so it is happening and, you know, and they are succeeding, but they're very, very small organizations. Um, and, you know, I, I think the consequence is seeing that, you know, conferences and who gets to speak and who gets flown around the world and who gets to travel, um, who gets, you know, credit as authors or who gets the big grants. Um, you know, we can't only look at state actor violence against queer people and think that that's doing justice to the full spectrum of the community. You know, I, I always remember this experience I had when I went to Morocco in 2010. Um, I just started it outright. And, um, and it was, you know, it was an exploratory trip and there were a lot of gay men that wanted to meet with me and I, I kept saying, like, where are the lesbians? And when I asked them that question, they would say, oh, you know, they don't want to come out. They don't want to meet. You know, they, they just need to stay at home. And then, you know, I worked my, like, feminist sisterhood network. And, um, and you know, I found my way to lesbians in Morocco through a women's rights network, not through an LGBT network, because the LGBT network was actually a gay network. And when I finally got to the Moroccan lesbians, I asked, you know, why don't you meet with the gay men? And in that case, they said, well, the gay men all meet at night. And they meet in cafes. And the cafes are cafes that only men go to. And at night, our families want us at home. So when we want to meet with other lesbians, we do it in other spaces. We do it during the day or we do it through sports. You know, we do it through spaces that are safer. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we're still struggling with those issues. I mean, in terms of trans issues, I mean, we still have a very long way to go. You know, I was explaining to a, um, a straight ally recently, like, why straight people need to care about transgender rights. You know, transgender people are so statistically small, but why, why should straight people care? And it's because transgender people are disproportionately impacted by human rights violations. And if you don't care about transgender people, but you do care about the rule of law, and you do care about your own safety, then you should care that these people fall through the cracks. And if trans folks can fall through the cracks, then guess what? So can you. Um, thankfully, there's some really excellent work happening right now around increasing funding for trans communities, um, increasing support for trans-led organizations that I think is so important. You know, the thing that worries me right now is um, whether or not we're actually taking on patriarchy in the queer community and recognizing, you know, the real problem is not is it gay men, lesbians, or trans folks that lead organizations? Are we getting to the root question of, are we dismantling patriarchy so that we'll all be safe? <laughs> just a simple question. Again, we can solve that in you know, just you know, the time we have today. <laughs> but I mean, and that does raise all sorts of other questions about intersectionality as well, and thinking about how do we promote global LGBTI human rights, global queer human rights, when we also have such critical issues as Islamophobia, and we do, you know, or, you know, when, you know, it, it's not, I'm sure we both have heard cases of people sort of reverting to racist tropes or, you know, other highly problematic discourses when talking about uh, human rights abuses in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in the former Soviet Union. And sort of how do we get around that, or how do we sort of simultaneously work on combating human rights abuses and not feeding those tropes. Mm. Um, well, let me 
Uh, let me answer this and then also share some, some good news that I forgot to mention in your prior question. I mean, look, the only way to be effective in working for justice is through working intersectionally. You know, I don't walk into a room as only a lesbian. I walk into a room as a lesbian, a woman, a white person, an able-bodied person. And so if I'm not working alongside other communities that actually center their own marginalization, then I'm failing them and I'm failing myself. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I understood your question right, but mm. I, you know, if the question was, is intersectionality a valuable strategy for queer communities, then I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. If your question was, can we ever afford to let our strategies play into, I don't know, racist or colonial tropes for our own short-term game? The answer is absolutely not, because in the end, we'll all lose. And I guess, so to note on both of those, how, how do we combat them when, say, tackling real human rights crises in Egypt or in uh, Tanzania with, you know, and do so intersectionally? I think this is when the politics of inter- international solidarity can become really complicated. So, you know, I have seen many a wave of sort of white American, you know, panic over what was happening in a country in the global south. You know, whether it's Nigeria or Egypt or somewhere in the Caribbean. I actually uh, know a, a couple of people who repeatedly are calling for a boycott of the Caribbean because there are buggery laws there. And I'm like, <laughs> that is actually... <laughs> What they're talking about is like a tourism boycott. And, you know, and then I'll talk to our, our colleagues and friends from the Caribbean. I'll talk to Kenita Placid, who's outright Caribbean advisor, who's from St. Lucia, who lives and works full time in the Caribbean. And I'm like, you know, did these random guys hear something that I didn't hear? Are you calling for a boycott of the Caribbean because of buggery laws? And the answer is always no. You know, like that's not the strategy that will make queer communities safe in the Caribbean because that would suggest that you can somehow separate queerness from economic survival of their islands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the, the places where these issues get murkiest is when Americans or people in the global north or, or even people around the world are thinking, how can I be in solidarity with queer communities in crisis somewhere else without talking to them? And that's when we make the most mistakes. And that's why I would argue that organizations like Outright are really important. Because when a crisis breaks out, we don't theorize, like, hmm, what sounds like a good response? And we don't use a one-size-fits-all response. You know, we really talk to the communities there, and we specifically talk to the leadership there. We ask them what they want, and, and then, you know, that's the strategy we take. Great. And that sort of feeds into the question of how do we combat the idea that LGBTI politics existence, you know, comes from the West or that human rights comes from the West. Um, when, to some degree, there are kernels, you know, identity, talking in terms of identity comes from the West. The rainbow flag comes from the West. But obviously, it's a much, much more complicated story than that. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how successful this argument is that homosexuality comes from the West. And obviously, you know, your listeners probably know, you know, that, you know, colonial era sodomy laws were imposed by Britain and France and Portugal and Spain. You know, these were not indigenous legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doesn't really matter. 
Um, I mean, at the recent concert in, in Egypt, um, you know, I mean, that ended up sparking mass arrests. I mean, you know, people were so carried away by the joy of the music, they unfurled a rainbow flag. So wherever that rainbow flag was originally invented, like, those people own it now. Mm. It's their flag. Um, they stuck their necks out because they felt like they were sticking themselves out. That's mm. how they wanted to celebrate. Mm. Um, I think the arguments around um, homosexuality being a colonial Western imposition are the most serious we have to grapple with. I mean, it is such a successful way of undermining local communities and making them unsafe. And, you know, I think there's only one solution to that argument, and that is promoting the leadership of queer communities locally. That is the only way to combat it. The question that always runs through my head working on these issues is how, when we see challenges and crises abroad, you know, sort of it's easy in, or at least comfortable sitting in DC, sitting in New York, to think we have the answers. Um, and how does your experience specifically flip that on its head? And I'm hearing a bit of that already, but sort of getting beyond the human right, Western human rights savior complex. Mm. Well, I think the reason why Outright is an effective organization is because the data that I use, the strategies that we develop, comes from our staff based in offices around the world. So more than half of our staff are based outside of the U.S. Our program staff live and work in the communities that we work on. Um, they come from the movements that uh, that give them the credibility to be leaders regionally. Um, and we work in partnership. I mean, it's like, it just, an international organization can be your greatest asset or your worst enemy. Um, I think the value of an international organization depends greatly on your model. So you have places like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch um, that have this like incredibly powerful mainstream brands. Um, queer organizations will never get the New York Times or the BBC attention the way mainstream organizations will. So for Outright, we asked ourselves very seriously, like what is the added value a global queer organization can have? And we decided it was a few things. Um, number one, it's creating access to regional and international mechanisms that go beyond domestic borders, but influence domestic borders. But I think the, um, the coup in Zimbabwe, well, I know that the negotiated language is not a coup, but I think perhaps we can call that. The overthrowing of Mugabe is a perfect example. You know, where did the Zimbabwean elite go when they were trying to organize the transfer of leadership um, after Mugabe, they went to South Africa. And they went to South Africa because South Africa is a political and economic powerhouse. And they went to South Africa because South Africa is the current chair of the Southern African Development Community. So it speaks on behalf of the regional governments. And of course, the regional governments are the ones that Zimbabwe needs to be able to trade with. And they're also the ones that could most quickly respond with military force if they did not support the transition happening in Zimbabwe. So one of the things that Outright does is we leverage regional and international mechanisms in the service of domestic change. So one of the reasons we've been able to do so many trainings in the Philippines is because we took the government of the Philippines to the Human Rights Committee. We, got, we embarrassed them. We made them commit to making changes, and then we brought them back home. A second thing that we do is we aggregate data across multiple countries. 
And I think this is really valuable because queer communities are not counted. So when we have data, it's usually generated by our own communities. It's not from official sources. And it's very often only qualitative data that exists at the country level. So last year, Outright established a global research program that seeks to aggregate data across multiple countries. You can see our most recent access to health report that we did with MSM Global Forum, where in February we're launching our new report on civil society access for queer communities. Mm. And then the third thing I would say that we do that's incredibly important is we do a, a enormous amounts of training. You know, I'm, I'm approaching middle age, so I can say... Um, when I started out, you know, there weren't a lot of people who kind of showed me like, hey, here are the shortcuts. This is how you can do it. Um, and I wish there had been people that could have accelerated my progress. We do a lot of trainings now on safety and security, on uh, how to collect human rights documentation, on how to be good advocates. And we do that because the communities that are coming up now don't have to repeat the mistakes that we made when we were young we can help accelerate their progress. And it makes a huge difference. You've already answered you know, this in a number of different ways, but sort of how else does Outright work specifically to advance global LGBTI human rights? Um, well, maybe there are three quick examples I could give you. You know, going back to the question you asked about, um, you know, lesbian rights violations around the world, I, I did just want to give a, and, um, a shout out. We published two reports um, earlier this year, one called Being Lesbian in Iran and one called Being Transgender in Iran. And they're the two most comprehensive studies based on the most number of interviews of lesbians and trans Iranians in the world. And we did that because we saw a real lack of data. Um, and so one thing we do is we publish reports and our reports tend to focus on the people that are most marginalized and the issues that are the most cutting edge. So one of the things we found in the trans report is that under certain circumstances, transgender people do have access to legal gender identity recognition in Iran, but the process is too slow and the medical care is too weak. Um, so the pathway is inadequate, and it's really inadequate for trans Iranians that don't want gender confirmation surgery as a prerequisite to gender identity recognition before the law. The second thing that we do is we convene meetings um, maybe it sounds funny, like, who cares about going to another meeting? Um, but a meeting that is a training it can change your life. And so we co-convened with the Eastern Caribbean Alliance for Diversity and Equality, ECAID, a Caribbean women's conference in St. Lucia, maybe a month and a half ago. And it was a, um, a training in leadership and diversity and it was the fifth annual conference. We've been, you know, working on this since the very beginning. And I remember uh, the first year I went, I met this young 22-year-old who was like, you know, just out of university, all smiles, all knees and elbows, you know, just coming into herself. And, um, and I kind of wondered, like, okay, so what's her story as an activist going to be? Um, this year when I went back, I met Arlene again. She's now the executive director of DomChap. LGBT national organization in Dominica. So those meetings, those trainings, they can be absolutely transformative. Um, and then the third thing I want to mention is uh, we do high-level advocacy. Um, so we do things like hold the governments accountable at the United Nations, get the UN Secretary General to speak out, ensure that we have an independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. 
um, because this, these systems of monitoring and recognition, they really matter. I think for U.S. listeners in particular, sort of getting a sense of just how important the U.N. is, you know, mm. is not necessarily as obvious to your average, if you subsist on American media, even more you know, LGBT uh, supportive media. Yeah, I think this is like really, really hard for a lot of Americans to understand. You know, I can hardly think of an American queer activist that turned to the United Nations for help. Um, although, interestingly, some of us use our city's human rights commissions as a resource. Like, the New York City Human Rights Commission is excellent on LGBT issues. And as a matter of fact, we have the regulations prohibiting um, transgender people from being restricted in access to public restrooms in our break room because the New York City Human Rights Commission published it. So it's kind of like thinking of your very good local human rights commission on a global scale. That's the challenge. That's the opportunity. And, you know, I think um, the reason why Americans can't necessarily always appreciate the UN is because we believe in American exceptionalism. We believe that the U.S. does not have to be subject to rules and regulations that govern the, the international human rights system. Um, we think that we have all the answers at home and and, you know, sometimes we also think we don't need external resources because we have the rule of law. Um, but that's actually not the case for many queer communities around the world. You know, if you have sodomy laws on the books or cross-dressing laws on the books, then you need to be able to go to somewhere else and say, this is completely unfair. Mm -hmm. I think one of the best examples of um, the value of the UN is actually happening right now. You know, the intersex movement is finally getting some of it, the recognition that it deserves, it's finally getting some funding, it's finally getting some legal traction. But for the most part, intersex rights are not where they should be in any country around the world. But the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has issued fact sheets about intersex rights. The High Commissioner himself makes statements about these issues. They are helping to put intersex rights on the map. So in a way, that's an example where the international system is really far ahead of national jurisdictions. And that's something that can help intersex activists in every country around the world make change locally. Terrific. Um, you know, with, you know, Human Rights Day, with, you know, a coming new year, let me ask you just, you know, what gives you hope and how do you take care of yourself in times of, uh, you know, both darkness and, you know, the light returning? What specifically is giving me hope? God, I'm trying to think. I, find, I feel like I find something that gives me hope every single day. Um, I guess one thing that's giving me hope is Outright has had a, a project in Iraq for a very long time. Um, it's a project that we do in coalition with women's rights organizations and the burgeoning queer movement there. And um, last week, we supported the submission of a petition to the International Criminal Court uh, that would examine the definition of gender in the Rome Statute um, and basically bring a, a case that the ICC, ICC should open an investigation into the ways that ISIS has targeted women and queer people on the basis of crimes against humanity. And this, if it succeeds, will represent a huge legal leap forward. Um, it will change international criminal law. And that's something we did just last week. So, you know, this is only Monday. Who knows what will happen this week? Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and where can we learn more about you, more about Outright's work? Well, I'm so glad you asked. 
you can come to our website, outrightinternational.org. We're also really active on social media. So find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you so very much. I appreciate this immensely. Thank you. And this is a wonderful uh, podcast and radio show. And I really am honored to have been invited. So thank you, Ian. My absolute delight. Thanks again to Jessica for a great conversation and for all the work that she and all the amazing folks at Outright Action International do. Again, you can find out more at their website, outrightinternational.org, and follow them on social media. We'll be back next week with a bonus episode. After that, it's time for a holiday break, but Radio Freak Utopia returns with our new schedule, coming out with interview episodes on the first Monday of every month, plus more bonus material along the way. I'm developing a Patreon page for Radio Freak Utopia. I'll officially launch it early in 2018, but I want to offer my big thanks to Mark and Lisa, our two first Patreon, well, our first two Patreon patrons. Your support makes all this work possible, and I'm incredibly grateful. If you're already sold on us, even as I'm still developing the page, go over to patreon.com and search for Radio Freak Utopia and consider pledging. As always, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us via your favorite podcast app, now including Spotify. And if you're enjoying Radio Freak Utopia, please do leave us a review uh, at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, so on, wherever you get your podcasts. Each review does really get us more listeners. Theme music is Second Flash by Neffet of the Tunguska Electronic Music Society, used by attribution through Creative Commons. See you next week. <laughs>